Amen. I think uh, it is safe to say that this last year has had a significant impact on a lot of people. I think it's safe to say that everyone has been affected in some way or another over the course of this past year. Um, some more than others, of course, but I don't think anybody has been immune. And I think one of the biggest uh, or most, I think the thing that's uh, had the most profound effect or how do I say this? The thing that I've seen most of all as I've tried to observe, and this is just my opinion, but I think there has been an exposure of and an amplification of the deep-seated fear of death. Some have always known that they feared death. And this has simply solidified it. Um, others have known that they feared death, but this is, as I've already said, it's, it's amplified it. And, and it has more of a profound effect upon them than I think they realize or admit. Or at least would have wanted to admit. And there are others that didn't know they were afraid of death and now do. And then there are others, of course, that are and deny it. And you can still tell they, they deal with it because of the actions and choices that they're making. It kind of says otherwise. As Pastor Miller said on Thursday at his father's funeral, Death is no respecter of persons. It's a reality that every man, woman, boy, and girl is going to deal with death because death is an inevitability. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once. And in Job chapter 14, uh, 1 to 5, it says that God says, or it says that God has determined the length and limits of our days. And then Jesus even says in Matthew chapter 5 that worrying is not going to add one hour to that limit or that length. And in case we were doubting about everybody running into death or experiencing death, Genesis 5 reminds us eight different times that um, everybody dies. It doesn't matter if they were 895 years old, 905, 910, 969. They all died. And we will all die as well. Paul actually calls death an enemy. And it's an enemy we, we can't defeat on our own. It doesn't matter how well we eat or how well we exercise. It doesn't matter what gym we join. It doesn't matter the diet we follow. It doesn't matter how many miles a week we walk, run, or bike. It doesn't matter if we follow protocols and mandates. It doesn't matter if we wear one mask or two. It doesn't matter if we get all of our shots. 
It doesn't matter if we eat out or stay at home in isolation. Death cannot be avoided. And that's because a holy and righteous and just God determined death to be the inescapable penalty for sin. And question 84 of our larger catechism tells us that death being threatened as the wages of sin, it is appointed unto all men once to die, for all have sinned. Now I start there on that bright note. Because in our text tonight that John just read, two people are facing the gut-wrenching reality of death. It's both right, right in their midst. Those that they hold dear, one, one is on the brink and the other has already died. And they're both having to deal with the reality. They're both having to deal with the powerlessness that they had in their experiences. But the stories have happy endings. And they have happy endings not because the first death is postponed. And not because the second is temporarily overcome. But there's a happy ending to these stories because we learn about Christ who intervened. We're going to see that, we're going to see the faith that Christ fosters. We're going to see the compassion that Christ conveys. We'll see the power that Christ possesses. And we're going to see the worship Christ warrants. And in the end, while death may be certain, I want us to know from the very beginning that the fear of it does not have to be. Because death is not final for those who look to the Lord Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer before we begin tonight. Father, by your spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word. Awaken our attention and refresh us and encourage us and challenge us and convict us. And most of all, Father, tonight, would you comfort us as we see Jesus and as we hear his gospel. I'm, as always, weak and needy. Would you equip me for this task? Would you grant me support and strength? And would you fill me with your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace? That I might do something for you? Would you help me to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and with grace? Speak to us. Give us ears to hear what you are saying. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. His Sermon on the Plain, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through Luke, and so we've just let off where he has finished what is called the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount. And he's entered into Capernaum. And news of his arrival, of course, uh, began to travel quickly around the area. Um, it's, it's not a new phenomenon, right? It's been happening all along. 
since he began his ministry. Everybody is abuzz with the things that he's doing. I mean, he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's teaching. He's, he's eating and drinking with sinners. And everybody, everybody's talking about him. And this centurion apparently believed the stories that he had been hearing, that we, he was hearing around town. Because the minute he hears that Jesus has arrived, he springs into action. And that's because his very dear friend, his, his very precious servant, was sick. Matthew says the man was paralyzed and, and suffering terribly. Luke says he was at the point of death. Now, some of you understand that statement. And you also understand the desire to scream into action on behalf of someone who is sick. You understand wanting to come to the rescue of someone that's suffering terribly. You want to come and, and help and, and save someone who is at the point of death. You've, you've walked through illnesses with others. You may be walking with someone currently. And therefore, you understand the impulse to do whatever you can to alleviate and eliminate their pain. You want to provide relief and comfort because you don't want to look in their face one more day and see what they're experiencing. So you know, well, you also know the frustration and the feeling of helplessness that comes because you can't do what needs to be done. As much as you want to, as much as you desire to. So you, you especially can identify with the centurion. You know what's going on. This centurion has actually probably exhausted all of his resources. He was a man of means and he's exhausted all of his resources and influence and power to help. And there's nowhere that he can turn and he's possibly at that moment where his you know, he's struggling and his hope is waning, if not all but gone. And he hears that the one person that can help has arrived. The one that can help is now here. So he immediately sends out some of the Jewish leaders to not only find him, but to tell him to come and to heal this precious servant, this dear friend. And, and while he does so, he is acknowledging to everybody he knows, everybody that's in the house, everybody that's around, that he is trusting and believing in Jesus. The only one who could save him. His belief has become action. And in verse 4, the leaders find Jesus. They, they find him and they begin to plead with him. Please come back. Come back and, and help. We, we need you to do what, what the centurion has asked. And, and they begin to lay out the case before him. They, they want to they plead with him. And, but everything that they, they say in order to convince him to come back and help is based upon what a great guy this centurion is. Right? It's... They wanted Jesus to know that this centurion is worthy to have him do this for him. In other words, they, they wanted him to know that, that this centurion has, has earned the right to have this request fulfilled. He is a great man. 
He is a loyal man. He's a tender-hearted man. He was a generous man. He treats he treats those who work for him really well. And he's not a Jew, but he even likes us. I mean, he paid for the synagogue. If anybody deserves to be, if anybody deserves to to have the request fulfilled, man, it is him. He's earned it. In their estimation, he was deserving. In their opinion, all that he had done had, had earned enough credit for healing. Really what they're saying is, Jesus, you're obliged to help this guy. And I say estimation and opinion because when we get down to verse 6, it becomes obvious that the centurion has a very different opinion of himself than the Jewish leaders had. We're not told whether um, he had had time to think about it and realize, you know, it probably wouldn't be a really good idea for Jesus to come to my house because he's a Jew and I'm a Gentile and, and that's not good. Or we don't know if he had heard the Jewish leaders. He had heard what the Jewish leaders had been saying and he had become mortified. But for whatever reason, we, we're told, or we know that this powerful and well thought of and influential man did not think so highly of himself that he believed Jesus owed him something. It was just the exact opposite. Whatever he believed about Jesus, one thing we know what he believed about himself, and that was he was not worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. He was not worthy for Jesus to be under his roof. He was not worthy to be in a face-to-face -face conversation. That's why he sent his friends. And in humility, through his friends, he basically says, Jesus, stop where you are. Don't come any further and let my servant be healed. In other words, you know, you don't have to come. You don't have to touch him. You don't have to see him. You can do it from wherever you are. No matter how far away you might be, just say the word. And then he adds this. It's kind of interesting. He says, and I understand authority because I'm in a position of authority. What does that mean? I, I think what he's saying is, look, I'm in a position of authority. People under me, he said, I get authority. So people under me, when I say do something, they do something. When I say go somewhere, they go somewhere. When I say speak, they speak. And, and so I understand that. But, but they do that because my authority comes from Rome. And ultimately, my authority comes from Caesar. And I think he's saying, look, if you say be healed, he will be healed. Because you're a man in authority. As a matter of fact, you're backed by God himself. Somehow, someway, he knew. He may not have known that God, or that Jesus was the Son of God, but he knew Jesus was backed by God and had authority over the physical and the spiritual. And we know that because he's been hearing the story. So he's been hearing of those who have, who have been healed and those who, the demons that have been cast out. So he doesn't need to be convinced at this point. God is backing Jesus and he believes that his word is enough.
That's all he needs. And Jesus is taken aback. Uh, the language here is so interesting because the last time he felt this way was over the unbelief of those in his hometown. Now he's feeling this way due to the belief of this Gentile. This powerful man, this powerful man of means had admitted he needed help. This moral and upright man of reputation had admitted he was unworthy. And this man of authority submitted to Jesus and trusted in his word. Jesus marveled at this man's humble faith. And he says, I tell you, I haven't seen this in Israel. And basically he's saying, look, I haven't seen this among my covenant people. And now I'm seeing this in someone who is a stranger to the covenant promises. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of faith that Christ fosters. He fosters his faith today. He, the faith that Christ grants and encourages and develops and promotes the growth of, even today, is found by him. He desires us to exercise this kind of faith. Think about it. He fosters a humble faith that acknowledges our own neediness and our own inability. He fosters a faith, a humble faith that acknowledges our unworthiness. He fosters a faith, a humble faith that acknowledges the futility of placing our trust in our own works. And he also fosters a humble faith that refuses the lie that we have merited or earned enough credit that places God in our debt. He fosters a humble faith that acknowledges we are in need of the saving work of Jesus Christ because only Christ can deliver us from sin and death. That's the spiritual reality to which this story points. And he fosters a humble faith that trusts in his word that is sufficient and as we'll see in a minute, is powerful. The faith he fosters. Let's look now at the compassion he conveys in verses 11 to 13. The scene shifts, and he comes to Naim. And Jesus and his disciples and this great crowd that's following him approach the gate. And as they are about to enter, another large group is exiting. This group is a funeral procession. A procession. A man had died earlier in the day, and so they're bringing him outside the city so that they can bury him. And this large group is grieving and mourning, uh, and it can be felt that, that there's a deep sense of it going on from everyone in the uh, procession. But one woman's grieving seems to be more intense than anyone else's. And that's because the young man on that deer or on that trailer with the cloth over him is her only son. And to make matters worse, she's been in this position before. We don't know how uh, much earlier, but she's been in this position before because her husband had died. She's a widow. 
And so the intensity of her grief is not only due to, to the death itself, but brothers and sisters, she's alone for the first time in her life. And that's why this, this great crowd is following her, probably because in this little little town they know that, and they want her to know that they're, they're coming alongside her. They, they want to help her just as the centurion wanted to help his servant. And again, some of you know this pain. You've been touched by death. Husband, or wife, a father, or a mother. Grandfather, grandmother, just in the last month and a half. Some of you have experienced the excruciating pain of losing a child. That those who have been in this woman's shoes know is just sheer agony. And it's not only grief for the death, but there's anger. And there's anger, not only at the death, but there's anger for the sin, apart from which there would be no judgment or death. Listen to these words from Martin Luther. He says, when you hear of death, you must think not only of the grave and the coffin and of the horrible manner in which life is separated from the body and how the body is destroyed and brought to naught, but you must think of the cause by which man is brought to death and without which death and that which accompanies, accompanies it would be impossible, namely sin and the wrath of God on account of sin. And many of us should know exactly what she's doing. When verse 13, notice, Jesus has compassion on her and says to her, don't cry. Don't cry. And it's interesting uh, to a person, and all the commentaries um, that I've been reading as we go through this book, to, to a commentator, all of them say, had he not done what he was about to do, telling her not to weep at that moment would have been extremely insensitive. Because we need to cry. But it wasn't insensitive because of what he's about to do. This scene is not a scene that gives us an example of faith that we saw in the first scene. This scene gives us an example of pure grace. Nothing but grace. Because Christ is moved with compassion. She doesn't ask anything. Listen to the words of B.B. Warfield. This is the emotion, this compassion, is the emotion which most frequently is attributed to Jesus. This divine mercy has been defined as the essential perfection in God, whereby he pities and relieves the miseries of his creatures. It includes, that is to say, the two parts, an internal movement of pity and an external act of beneficence. And this wasn't just this quick passing you know, blow or, uh, you know, blow of pity or compassion. It's something, by definition, is deep-seated. It's this deep emotional churning within the bowels. It's something that's just felt. You can just, it, you feel it twisting within you. And, and we don't really understand that. We have a problem understanding that because our compassion is tainted by sin. 
Right? And so we don't, due to that sin, our compassion is somewhat numbed. Um, our compassion is, is somewhat restrained. Jesus' compassion is, is not restrained. It is not numb. He experiences it fully and perfectly. Dane Ortland says that it was unfiltered. An outflowing affection not limited by sinful self-absorption. What does that mean? Our compassion only goes so far before we turn it in on ourselves some way. We begin to think of ourselves in, in some form of, and it, just, and it limits how compassionate we can be. Jesus, of course, did not experience that. He feels the full weight of that compassion, and it moved him to action. And we see different times when he, because it is the most common emotion that's described, uh, we see him at different times choose to respond differently. He does respond outwardly, but it, it takes different forms. And in this case, he determines to, he, he stops the parade and determines to raise this young man from the dead. But notice what verse 15 says. He gave him to his mother. Again, it's not an example of faith on her part because she didn't ask for Jesus to do it. It was an, exa it was an example of loving kindness and grace on his part, springing deep within his heart. And he didn't do it for the, for the, for the young man. He did it for mom. This scene is here in order to remind us and in some cases teach us that the, the compassion that Jesus exhibited to this woman in this little town on that day so long ago is the same compassion that he has for his people today. It's the same compassion whether, whether we face death, whether we're in the midst of a prolonged illness, whether we're in the midst of loss, of something or someone that we hold very dear, whether we're in the midst of lamenting time that has been lost, time that maybe has even been wasted and can't be restored. We might be in the, in the midst of mourning for people that we can't hold again or relationships that can't be relived. And we want so bad to go back. But remember the Lord Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he rose bodily. He's at the right hand of the Father in bodily form. What does that mean? It means when he sees his children grieving, that compassion is felt within him. And the deeper we grieve, the deeper his compassion. And he's merciful, he's sympathetic. And he's faithful to meet our needs when we cry out to him, which we should do. But this story also tells us the scene says that he reaches out in that compassion, in that faithfulness, in that, in that sympathy, even when we don't. When the pain grips us and we can't speak, and all we can do is weep, he's there. Ministering to us by his word. And spirit. He's moved with compassion. And he meets our need. And sometimes he does that through each other. Right? He was the one that, that identified the need of the woman. And he took the initiative and went 
to deal with it. And then he intervened on her behalf. Well, many of us have experienced that same thing by him, through his spirit, by the spirit, through his word, or through other believers that he has prompted. And so out of the overflow or the abundance of love and comfort that we have received, then we too are able to identify those needs, be confident to take initiative and be bold in our intervention. And we go in comfort as we have been comforted. We're able to minister in his name because we have been ministered to in his name. And that brings us to the power he possesses. And look at verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. He thought I skipped it, right? They found him well. Now look at verse 14. Then he came up and touched the beer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Both scenes... The word of Christ is enough. The word of Christ is authoritative and powerful. In the first scene, Jesus spoke and, and the centurion's servant's uh, death was postponed. No pomp, no circumstance, wholly, completely, and instantaneously healed. In the second scene, we see Jesus speak and the death of the young man was temporarily overcome. No pomp. No circumstance, wholly, completely, and instantaneously brought back to life. And we see in the second case what we've observed even early on in Luke, particularly in Luke chapter 4. And we mentioned this in our study of Hebrews because it arose out of our study of Leviticus, right? Jesus, God in the person of Jesus, was now dwelling amidst and in the, in the midst of those who were unclean, diseased, and broken. He was veiled by flesh. He remained veiled, but it was flesh. He could be seen and touched and approached. He could reach out and touch others. He wasn't keeping others that had been kept at arm's length. They were no longer being kept at arm's length. And so he reaches out and he touches that, that cart. What for anybody else would have caused them to be unclean. Jesus reaches out hand on the cart, and says, and knows it was the perfect opportunity to communicate that he himself was not corrupted or contaminated by death because he had the power over death. What unclean thing made others unclean, it was Jesus who would cleanse them because of who he was. And we also need to consider in this second, this second scene, uh, it, what it communicates in light of chapter 32 of our confession. It says this, The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal sub subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. That, of course, means that when Jesus spoke and said, Arise, the boy's body had to be reunited with its soul. In a word. His power extends over the visible and the invisible. The physical and the spiritual. The body and the soul. 
the living and the dead. There's nothing outside of his purview. That's why Hebrews 1 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now on two occasions, I've got a couple of you I've noticed, you've heard it, I'm sure the rest of you did too, but I just, I noticed a couple of you. I've purposely said the servant's death was postponed. And the son's death was temporarily overcome. And the reason I did so is because eventually those two died. We don't know when. But as we've already said, all men die. So when Jesus intervened, he didn't give them glorified bodies, which is why Pastor Philip Ryken goes so far to say is that the, the man in the, sick, in, in the second scene was more or less resuscitated rather than resurrected. I get what he means. You see, what these stories actually point to because of that fact, because it was only temporary, because it was only postponed, what they point to is our need for the provision of the resurrection of Jesus through which death is ultimately defeated. He had not died yet. Pointing ahead to what he would provide because he and he alone has the power over sin and death. He alone has the power to resurrect spiritually. He alone has the power to resurrect physically. He alone, uh, well, through his, the, the power of his crucifixion, we are saved from our sins through the power of his resurrection in which we will be raised in, to, in glorified bodies. Right? It's in that power that we have our hope. For those of us who look to Christ, death is not final. That's why Paul says, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need to be encouraged today. Our hope is not in the quality of life we currently have. Our, our hope is not in the longevity of our lives. Our hope is not whether He heals us or does not heal us in the here and now. Our hope is in the eternal and in what is yet to come. That is our hope. These stories remind us that on that great day when Christ returns, we will be given those glorious immortal bodies. And again, in the words of Pastor Riken, Christ is not only going to come back and bring us to himself, he is going to give us back to one another. Praise the Lord. Leads right into our last point. The worship Christ warns. In verse 16. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God. Fear seized them all. They glorified God. Saying a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout all of Judea. And all the surrounding country. And there was fear. But it was 
a fear and, and an awe. It wasn't a fear of death. It was an awe of what had been done. It was an awe of the person of the Lord Jesus. The, the point is simple. Those in Christ do not have to fear death. We should live in fear and in awe of our Creator and in fear and in awe of our Savior and in light of eternity. And we should worship and bear witness to who Christ is. In the words of the writer of the Hebrews, right, Christ is the one who through death destroyed the one who had the power over death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Looking to Christ, we are no longer in bondage to that truth. Those chains are broken. Right? That's why John says he, he came, Christ came, that we might have life and have it abundantly. Our response should be reverence and awe and praise and glory toward the one who has set us free. And that's what we do here every week. We do that every week as we gather on the Lord's day. This is the day that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, securing our freedom from sin, securing our freedom from death, and granting us eternal life. And we gather as, as His body to ascribe Him the glory that is due His name. And it's also this death and resurrection that we should proclaim to those in whom we come into contact with those to whom we come into contact. Uh, because this isn't just good news. This is the best news that anyone could hear. Right? This is the best news for those who are spiritually dead and still in their sins. This is the best news for those who are afraid to die. This is the best news for those who need to be comforted because of their grief. Through the power of His Word, He calls the spiritually dead to life. Through the power of His death, he grants forgiveness. Through the power of His resurrection, we have the hope of eternal life. And we have the hope of seeing our loved ones again. Should we grieve death? Absolutely. Somebody said it before I did. That's fine. Absolutely. No question. Should we fear it? We should worship the Lord with gladness, come into His presence with singing and thanksgiving, proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. And because there will be a day when He will wipe away every tear. We know that. And until then, we weep and we grieve deeply, sometimes without words but we grieve with hope because there's joy in the midst of sorrow. It's difficult. Suffering and death are difficult, but they always, they always keep us focused on what's eternal. They, they keep us focused on the return of Christ when all will be made new. And this promise is sure because Christ is risen.